All right, if you would please open your Bibles to uh, Romans chapter 9. We're going to study verse 30 all the way through uh, chapter 10, uh, verse 21. It's a lot to cover. We're just not going to, like last week, we're not going to cover all the details. But uh, it's a wonderful passage in Scripture, Romans 9, beginning in verse 30. Um, You know, unless you're a toddler, every day of your life is filled with responsibilities that you are required to fulfill. Get to the bus stop on time, fill out a report, make a bank deposit, uh, pay some bills. By the time your life ends, you have fulfilled so many responsibilities that if you're even to try to count them all, uh, you wouldn't be able to. But of all the responsibilities you have in life, there is none greater than what Paul describes in our text. That is, your responsibility to draw near to God and experience his salvation. Romans 9, verse 30. What then shall we say? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer uh, to God for them is that, that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, They did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart, that is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believed in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not obeyed all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask you, have they not heard? Indeed they have. Their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold to say, I've been found by those who did not seek me. 
I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of, but of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to the disobedient and contrary people. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you do give us your word. We thank you that uh, though it can be challenging or difficult to understand and receive, um, you provide us with your spirit so that we may um, know and understand what you would have us to believe and how we should live our life in response to that. Uh, We thank you for this promise, and we thank you in your name. Amen. You know, if you were a physicist up until the turn of the 20th century, the only type of physics you would have known would be what we now call classical mechanics, based on the work of Isaac Newton all the way up through Albert Einstein. Classical mechanics does an excellent job of describing the physical world that we can see with the naked eye or the telescope. Classical mechanics takes into account mass and velocity and and allows, therefore, spaceships to land successfully on the moon. But classical mechanics ran into a problem around the beginning of the 20th century. Physicists realized that the true and reliable laws of classical mechanics break down at the subatomic level. The laws no longer work, or at least some of them. And so a new set of laws needed to be developed in order to understand the world in which we live in. Laws that conflict with the laws of classical mechanics. So here's what physicists are forced to do today. They're forced to hold two separately and apparently contradictory models of the universe, to hold them simultaneously. Uh, To not say that one isn't true over the other, but to hold them up, both of them, in tension with each other. Does that make sense? Christians need to do a similar thing. We need to hold two biblical truths in tension simultaneously. The seemingly conflicting truths are this, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Last week, Paul brought to the surface the doctrine um, that we call, uh, of God's sovereignty that we call the doctrine of election, that God elects or chooses who will come to him and receive mercy and grace. And God calls those people into a relationship with himself. Now, for some of you, this was a tough topic. I talked with a few of you afterwards. Um, some of you think that, that uh, God can't be a loving God if he chooses some over others. But didn't we see last week that God is under no obligation to save anybody, <laughs> right? And if God actually does save some, well, that means he's loving and merciful. But others kick back against the sovereignty of God's election because they think it renders evangelism senseless. Why tell someone about their need for Christ if after all they're chosen or predestined? Well, then God will just take care of it. And they'll present many passages in the Bible, which some of which we've seen here this morning, that, that people are called to believe the gospel. Why would God offer the gospel freely in scriptures if people weren't expected to believe it? seems to be a conflict here between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man to believe. 
Both are clearly taught in Scriptures. What we must do then is much like these two branches of physics that that seem to contradict each other, but really don't. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility seem to contradict, but they don't. Like modern physicists, we need to hold them in tension, affirming them both. Today we're going to look at man's responsibility to respond to God. We're going to see three things. Our responsibility to pursue God's grace, our responsibility to believe in Christ, and our responsibility to proclaim the gospel. First, our responsibility to pursue God's grace. Remember the conundrum that Paul is addressing here. A huge number of Jews in Jesus' day, in Paul's day, rejected Christ. But add to that a huge number, I have a hard time saying the word huge now that Donald Trump's running for presidency, a huge, huge number. I just ruined it for you, didn't I? Huge! A huge number of Jews rejected Christ, while a huge number of of Gentiles have embraced Christ. What went wrong? As we saw last week, the people who were given every advantage to believe in Christ, for the most part, rejected him. And the people who had for centuries been living in the dark, who could care less about God's law, for that matter, didn't even have God's law. Now they, many of them, the Gentiles, have come to believe in Christ. It's upside down. The ones who knew most about God did not come to know God, while the ones who knew the least about God came to know God best. This is what Paul's getting at in the first section. Look at verse 30, 9.30. Basically what he's saying is the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained it. And in verse 31, but Israel who did not pursue righteousness, uh, who did pursue righteousness, did not succeed. What went wrong with the Israelites? Paul tells us that they were tripped up. <laughs> they, they stumbled upon the very thing that should have steadied them. That person is Christ. Verse 32, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. That's what Paul writes. And then he quotes Isaiah 8.14. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And then he quotes verse 20, Isaiah 28.16. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Long before Christ was born, the prophet spoke of the one to come and the response that people would have to him. God says, I'm going to lay a stone in Zion. That's Jerusalem, all right? And and what the first stone that a, that a builder lays down is what? It's the cornerstone. It's the stone upon which all the other stones find their relation to. All the other stones in the foundation align up with it, and the whole building rests upon it. Uh, all the other stones in the building find their alignment with the cornerstone. My friends, Jesus is God's cornerstone for this redemptive plan for this world. And instead of placing themselves as stones upon Christ and aligning their lives to Christ, Paul says that Israel actually tripped over Christ. The stone that should have been where they find rest and peace and solidarity has become a stone that they tripped over. But the second part of the quotation states, however, whoever believes in him, will not be put to shame. Paul is saying that though countless Jews stumbled over Jesus, 
many Gentiles believed in him. My friends, isn't it true? Faith in Christ is in some ways like you've come to lay your life on top of Christ, to set him as your foundation. My friends, the church is, the Bible speaks of it, is, is Christ's building, and he is the chief cornerstone, and our lives are laid upon him. Our lives are meant to be in full alignment with him. Christian, there's not a single part of your life that isn't to be in alignment with Christ and his will for this world and for you. Mature Christians see themselves this way. Not one area of their life has been given permission to be out of alignment with Christ. Now, in what way did the Jews as a whole fail? Well, they stumbled over God's grace. They failed to see that a relationship with God is based, can only be based solely upon faith, not works. In verse 30, Paul says that the Gentiles attained righteousness because they pursued it by faith. In verse 31, Israel pursued righteousness, but not by faith, but as rather that it could be done by works. They could earn their way, work their way to God. Now, this word pursue shows up a couple times. The Greek word for pursue conveys the idea of a foot race. The Gentiles weren't even getting up out of their chair. They weren't even moving towards God. The Israelites, they were moving towards God, but in the wrong way. Israel ended up stumbling over Christ in the grace of God there. In verse 3, we read that they were ignorant of the righteousness of God. Now, what does Paul mean by the righteousness of God? Well, the righteousness of God is God's righteousness. It's his moral perfection and his beauty and his glory and his rightness of relationship within the Godhead. But what the Jew failed to understand is that no one is capable of attaining God's righteousness. But thankfully, God will give you his righteousness. He'll give it to all who, by faith, believe in Christ. See, without this, you can become a very religious person who tries really hard to do all the right things, to find out what God really likes, and and going and pursuing those with great zeal. But in the end, you can miss out on salvation. Verse 2 tells us that many Israelites were zealous for God, but they were ignorant of needing God's righteousness. So as verse 3 states, they went out and tried to establish their own instead of submitting to God's righteousness. They believed that God's law was the way in which they would earn their way to God. Maybe you're here today and you think that you become a Christian by merely deciding to be a better person, to embracing this book and all the to-dos in it that uh, tell you how to be this better person. And, And that's what it means to be a Christian that you decide to follow Bible rules and uh, you do it to your best of your ability. But that doesn't make you a Christian. A Christian is someone who's come to realize that they utterly depend upon the grace of God, that God must be merciful if I am ever to experience his righteousness in my life, that if anyone has had peace with God, then God must offer grace. For there is no other way for you and me to be in relationship with God other than by faith in Christ. So you can be really sincere in trying to be the best person you can be. You can work really hard to study God's laws and seek to live it out. 
But the problem is this. God never gave us His laws so that we could be righteous by doing them. He gave His law primarily to make us see how much we need His grace. When you look in the Old Testament and and God gave Moses the law, what else did He give to, to God's people at the very same time? The tabernacle, the temple. Here's the law, and here's what you're going to need, because you're going to fail. You're going to need my grace and mercy that is offered in the tabernacle, which, by the way, points to the coming of a final eternal sacrifice, Jesus himself. Now, back to the point here. If this is how you view Christianity, is there's a set of rules that you embrace and you follow, and by doing them, God, of course, has to pat you on the back and welcome you into heaven, then um, listen to what Paul writes in verse 4. Verse 4, this is beautiful. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to all, to everyone who believes. You see, the law points us to Christ. You know, I cannot and have not honored my mother and father the way I should be. There are days that I cannot help but covet. There are days that I covet those who don't seem to covet. (laughs) All right, figure that one out. All right. My friends, the law of God is meant to drive us to Christ, not to, to cause us to think, oh, I can do this. The law is given so that we know we need a Savior. It's supposed to drive us to the position where Paul was. Remember back in Romans chapter 7 where he says, What a wretched man I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. If you're a Christian here today, what a word for you this morning. That Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for all who believe. So we see that God is sovereign over those who believe in the gospel or not. But Paul also fully holds responsible the Jews who stumbled over Christ. You see that? See the tension that that creates? We're responsible to pursue the righteousness of faith. We're responsible to run towards God to receive his mercy and grace. Second point is we're responsible to believe in Christ. Let me make something really, really clear here. The gospel isn't a suggestion, like a waiter telling you that, hey, you know, the lobster roll is pretty good today. The gospel is not a suggestion. Imagine a drill sergeant who asks, hey, who would like to participate in a 10-mile forced road march? Drill sergeants, sergeants don't suggest. They command. And hopefully you obey. In verse 16, Paul writes that they have not all obeyed the gospel. Elsewhere elsewhere in our passage, he says that they do not submit to God. You know, the first words out of Jesus' mouth in Mark's gospel are these. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. There's no question mark after that. It's an exclamation point. Jesus doesn't ask. He commands. And the proper response to Jesus, if you were there, when he said, repent and believe the gospel, would be what? Obedience. Yes, Jesus, help me to repent. I'm not very good at it. 
Yes, Jesus, help me to believe. What am I to believe in? I'm not very good at believing either, but help me. See, through the Bible, um, the Bible teaches that God sovereignly chooses who he calls to himself, but the Bible also teaches that we are to obey God's call and come to him through Christ. We're responsible to believe in Christ. Now, Paul describes what obeying the gospel looks like. He, he shows us just, just how the gospel saves us. Verse 8. Paul says, The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. The believer has a word of faith or words of truth that he or she has come to embrace. There is truth that must be known. What is this truth? First, there's two things Paul shows us. One, we must know Jesus' person or identity. And second, we must know Jesus' work. Verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. The truth you must believe is that Jesus is Lord. Now, the reference here is to Jesus' divine authority. The Greek word here used to, that we, we translate Lord is the Greek word kurios. And in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, the Greek word kurios is used to translate God's personal name, Yahweh. So to call Jesus kurios was not only a claim to his deity, but also to his authority over all the world. So we must know Jesus' identity as Lord. We must also know the truth concerning Jesus' work. Continuing in verse 9, And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. The truth that we must know is that Jesus lived, that Jesus died, and that Jesus rose from the grave in victory over our sins. That's the work of Jesus. That is why he came. Recently, Josh introduced a new song to us. We happened to sing it today. How providential that was. I saw it in the bulletin. I'm like, yes, I'm talking about that. Um, Horatio Bonar's words are played to a new melody. You remember the lyrics, right? Upon a life I have not lived. Upon a death I did not die. Another's life, another's death, I stake my whole eternity. So there's truth we must know. You must come to know that Jesus didn't just die for the world in general, but that he came to die for you, for you particularly. This must become your truth that you embrace. But second, this word is a truth that must be believed. We must believe it in our hearts. That's what Paul says. Now, the heart is not just what pumps blood. It, it, in, in ancient times, it was, it was basically all of you, who you are. It's your thoughts, your desires, your will, your actions, your longings all the things that you desire to do and do. We are to trust our whole self to the person and the work of Christ as our righteousness in God's presence. Now, we need to be careful here. There, there are many people who will say, you know, I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. But you need to remember, that even the demons believe that Jesus rose from the dead. To believe here means to, to trust to embrace, to appropriate this truth personally. And we are to pursue, we're to run, we're to race after Christ. For it's in him alone that you are saved. Verse 10 builds upon what Paul is saying. It says, For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Now, 
Many people who read this read it wrongly and they conclude that there's actually two actions that you need to do here. In fact, some churches will, will, after hearing that someone came to believe in Christ, they will make that person stand up before the congregation and confess it verbally before that person can consider themselves saved. Here's what we need to understand. Believing in the heart and confessing with the mouth are two sides of the same coin. Both lines are saying essentially the same thing. We're better off reading this like Hebrew poetry in which parallel lines are meant to be read uh, to convey the same meaning or idea. They're meant to be brought together, not separated. So being justified and being saved, those are essentially the same thing. They both mean to profess faith and trust in Christ Jesus as one's Lord. So Paul then tells us of the blessing of believing in Christ. Verse 11, for scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. And then in verse 12, he says that this blessing is for the entire world. That's what Paul is getting at when he talks about Jew and Gentile. Back in Paul's day, that was the entire populace of the entire world, Jew and Gentile. Paul is saying, this is for everybody, this message. Paul writes, there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Twice Paul says that this blessing is for all who call upon Christ. We are to obey the gospel. We are to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is our responsibility. If you're here today and you've never obeyed the gospel, if you've never called out to God that, that, that he would place um, your life in Christ on your behalf, do it today. Be obedient. Call out. But did you notice something? Last week, did we not read that it's God who calls <laughs> calls people to himself? Paul, Paul, Paul used the word um, in Romans 8.30 when he said, we read that all whom God predestines, he called. And then last week we read that before Jacob and Esau were even born, before either one could do anything right or wrong, God chose Jacob, but not Esau. Why? Paul, Paul wrote, he said, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Here's the tension we must wrestle with. God predestines and he calls people. If you, There's nobody who's been predestined who won't get a call, right? There's nobody on the list where a guy goes, oh, I forgot about that person. But no, God calls. He sends his Holy Spirit. He opens your eyes. He causes you to think of God in all new ways like you never have before. It's a work of God. He calls to you. That's on the one hand. We saw this last week. But we also see here that we are responsible to what? Call upon the Lord. It's mind-blowing. Talk about tension, right? (laughs) How do you resolve this? Thankfully, we don't have to. Thankfully, in God's mind, it's all perfectly clear. Maybe on that day in heaven, there'll be a day in heaven where it makes it all clear. We'll be like, oh yeah, that makes perfect sense. Now I get it, right? So we're responsible to pursue God's grace. And we're responsible to believe in Christ. Lastly, Paul shows us that we are also responsible to proclaim the gospel. Did you notice in our passage how often the feet are referenced? 
Remember, the Greek word that we translate pursue means like a foot race. And we're to pursue, we're to run uh, towards God's grace. And, and we're not to stumble, right? We're not to have two left feet and trip over Christ. Now Paul says that we're to move out on our feet so that others can hear this good news of Christ. Verse 15, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. Yes, this this is evangelism. And no, it's not for the professionals. It's not for the preacher. But didn't he say uh, we're to preach? And and that's your job, Mark. You're the preacher. Well, the Greek word we translate preach here actually means to herald, right? To to proclaim. And in the ancient times, there was a town square and you'd have a herald. And the herald would go out with the the day's news. And he would herald it for all to hear. He would proclaim it so people would know what was going on in the kingdom. Paul is saying that it's every Christian's responsibility to herald or to proclaim this good news of the gospel. In verse 14, Paul begins to ask a series of questions meant to help us understand how important it is that you and I um, step out and proclaim the gospel. Verse 14, he's essentially saying, how will people call on Jesus if they've not come to believe in him, right? And then, then how are they to believe in him if they've not first also heard. And, and how are they to hear unless someone preaches? And, and, and how are they to herald or preach unless these people aren't sent to do it, right? You follow the logic? Paul quotes the Old Testament. It says, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. I don't know about you, I don't like feet. You know, I'd have to say it's probably the most unbearable body part you could look at. I don't find it beautiful. And yes, your pastor did this this week. I Google searched foot models, images, just so I could like maybe see what a good foot looked like. Still not impressed. Anyway, All right. I am getting almost 50, right? So I'm allowed my moments. All right. So how can God call one of the most unappealing body parts beautiful? Well, the quote comes from Isaiah 52. Yeah, it's in that right before that servant song where where um, it speaks of the one who's going to suffer on behalf. He's going to be uh, pierced for the transgression of God's people. He's going to be led like a lamb to the slaughter. Right before that, we read these words. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. How beautiful are those feet? When you and I step out in this broken world and tell people the good news of Jesus Christ, God thinks it is beautiful. But it's not easy work. It doesn't say how beautiful are the feet of those who uh, are walking around in the valley, right? No, it's how beautiful upon the mountains. Hiking in the mountains is hard work. <laughs> and proclaiming the gospel is hard work. But beautiful are the feet that do it. God also doesn't say how beautiful are your hands when you sit on them. <laughs> uh, no. 
God calls our feet beautiful, not our hands. Because unless you're a really good acrobat, getting around on your hands is quite difficult. Here's what I hope we see. God is sovereign, and yet he sends us. God being sovereign doesn't mean we sit back and watch God. God sends people like you and me to bring the gospel to those God intends to save. Talk about important work. Christian, your life is so full of meaning, and yet we try to find meaning in all kinds of other things, don't we not? God has given you such a grand purpose, a wonderful calling to proclaim this good news to a world that needs good news. Now, I know some Christians reject the truth that God sovereignly chooses. They often say, well, why even bother evangelizing? I mean, if God is the one who predestines, then who's going to make it happen? No. Yes, God predestines those who will believe, but you and I are his ordinary means for reaching them. As we step out and herald the most amazing news ever, only then will people hear. And only then, after hearing the word of God, are they able to believe. And only after believing will they be able to call upon the name of the Lord. See, you and I can't look at a person and determine whether or not God's going to call them or not. And guess what? That's not your job. It shouldn't matter. You should share the gospel with as many people as God brings into your life. Work, family, um, acquaintances. We should pray that God would send his Holy Spirit to open their eyes, to give them a new heart. Because you see, in the end, salvation is of the Lord. It's his doing. As Jesus said earlier, as Ali read, no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. Uh, the, The Spirit gives life, not the flesh. We need the Holy Spirit to do this work. But this makes your work in the kingdom, your role, easy. Your job isn't to determine who's going to come to faith. Your job is just to tell how many people, um, however many people as you can, about the work of Jesus on your behalf. And if people reject you, guess what? They rejected your Lord as well. See, what you're presenting people isn't a spam and egg sandwich. (laughs) What am I talking about? Well, growing up in my house, my dad and my brother, it seemed like almost every Saturday, they would make Spam and Egg sandwiches. They would take Spam. I know my birthday's coming up. Do not buy me a can of Spam. Um, now, someone will. I know it. All right. They would, they would take Spam and slice it and then cook it in the skillet. And then uh, in the grease drippings, they would fry eggs, salt and pepper them, and and then... Some people are like, oh, that sounds pretty good. <laughs> Josh is back there going, yeah. All right. Uh, and then, you know, put it in some, between two pieces of wonder bread. And then they would eat these spam and egg sandwiches. I can honestly tell you, I never put my lips around a single spam and egg sandwich. <laughs> not in 50 years. I may have 20 years left, 30, who knows. But I'm not going to eat one. I can just tell you that. Christian, the gospel is not a spam and egg sandwich. (laughs) No, it's through the gospel that people are allowed to taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 34, 8. 
So stop thinking that you're called to sh- what you're called to share with others is a spam and egg sandwich. In Christ, you are part of something bigger than yourself. God has elected you so that you would receive his mercy and grace. But your being chosen doesn't permit you to be frozen. That is, you aren't to be a passive spectator in God's kingdom expansion. No, we're to get on our feet and run towards our neighbors, towards our co-workers, towards our families, towards whoever we know that doesn't know Christ. I know some of you are a little bit timid about this. Maybe in your head you're thinking, you know, I just became a Christian. I don't know a whole lot. I mean, I don't know my Bible very well. I mean, you know, I don't even know what's in the Old Testament or in the New. And it's all kind of confusing. Maybe you don't have everything all mapped out. Well, know this. Your reach team here at Grace, we're working on uh, coming up with some training that, that, that we'll be able to implement to where you can kind of work on some of those things. Uh, but also know this. You don't need to have everything figured out before you can step out. In fact, you know enough. You know what others need. You know, you know that God is good. You know that in Christ he forgives all kinds of sin. And we know that only through Christ can someone experience God's mercy and grace. And so say it with confidence. And say it not with a question mark, <laughs> but with an exclamation point. Expecting and trusting that God would open someone's heart to believe the message. All right, so last week we saw that God is sovereign. And this week we saw that mankind is responsible. These two seemingly opposed truths in the Bible, we're to hold them in tension. Somehow they are both true. The late preacher uh, Harry Ironsides once described this tension that exists um, between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. He created an imaginary scene where people are passing by the door to heaven that welcomes all to come, but not all do. Here's what he wrote. It's kind of old English, so, you know, King James Version. Here's what he says. It has been pictured this way. Here is a vast host of people hurrying down the broad road with their minds fixed on their sins. And one stands calling attention to yonder door, yonder, okay, the entrance into the narrow way that leads to eternal life. On it, on the door, plainly depicted the text, whosoever will, let him come. Every man is invited, none not need hesitate. Some may say, well, I may not be of the elect, and so it would be useless for me to endeavor to come, for the door will not open to me. But God's invitation is absolutely sincere. It is addressed to every man. Whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. If men refuse to come, if they pursue their own godless way down to the pit, whom can they blame but themselves for their eternal judgment? The messenger addressed himself to all. The call came to all. The door could be entered by all. But many refused to come and perished in their sins. Such men can never blame God for their eternal destruction. The door was open. The invitation was given. They refused. And he says to them sorrowfully, Ye will not come unto me that ye may have life. But some will say, I'm going inside. And behind him, as he turns around, he finds written on the inside of the door the words, Chosen in Christ before the foundation 
of the world. I know it's hard to wrap our minds around it. The side on the, on the, the sign on the outside door of heaven says, choose to enter. And then when you enter and you look back, there's another sign that says, chosen to enter. <laughs> Thankfully, we don't have to figure out how God works this all out. But does it not present us a God who is amazing, wonderful, worthy of our joy and delight? He is worthy of our wonder and praise. May we wonder at God and praise his grace towards us in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that uh, you know all things. Uh, You know that we are quick to doubt and quick to cast aside truths in your scriptures. Help us to lift both of these truths up, to hold them in tension, to know that you choose and yet you call us to choose you. Um, thankfully, you send your spirit to give us life. We praise you for that. Help us now as we turn to the Lord's Supper to rest in this grace that we've received in Jesus and to be strengthened for our days and years ahead as we live and serve him, as we proclaim this gospel message, we pray. Amen.